All right, if you've got your Bibles open, go to, if you don't, go to Luke 7, and you can go ahead and turn there at any point from here on out. Um, but Luke 7, this is within the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in history. Um, atheists and Christians alike love this passage. Um, believers and non-believers alike have used the chapters in the book of Matthew as a shaper for ethics, world ethics, and how we treat one another. It's, it's phenomenal. And so we're going to be looking at the first five verses totally familiar. You've heard this a thousand times, but this is going to be kind of our, our center text that we're going to start here with, and then we're going to end with as well. So if you could stand for the reading of God's word. And it says this, this is Jesus speaking. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you're going to be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're in a series called It's Complicated, and It's Complicated is just a series where we wanted to take the things that Christians typically fumble the ball on, that we either get wrong from Scripture, or we, we mess up communicating that to the world around us. And so um, last week, we started off with how am I, as a Christian, supposed to process what I'm seeing on the news with regard to Israel and Hamas? If you didn't uh, catch that, you could totally catch that on missionbible.tv. But today, we're going to be getting into this question, and this question is, this question is, whoa, there it is. Okay, wouldn't the world be better off without Christianity? Wouldn't the world be better off without Christianity? Now, spoiler alert, I'm going to say no. But that shouldn't be a shock to you. What may be a shock to you is how we're going to get there. Because one of the things that Christians, and I'm going to speak personally and autobiographically, have done is when people have said, I can't believe in Christianity because of all the messed up stuff in Christian history. Are you aware of what you people have done? And then I get defensive. I'm like, well, your people are worse. And he's like, so like second grade. But that's, that's typically, we get very defensive. We want to have an explanation away from everything that, that someone will bring up in a history class or whatever else. Um, a lot, I want to encourage you, if you are a reader or if you like to study history um, or you're just curious, this is a book called Bullies and Saints that um, a lot of the background historical work uh, for the sermon was done, uh, was done in reading and studying this. Um, this guy is a prof at Wheaton. He's an Australian dude named John Dixon, and it's called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history, um, because the truth is there is evil and there is good and one of the things that's really shocking is that some of the worst offenders in christian history also did some of the most amazing things and some of the most people the people who did some of the most amazing things also did some really messed up stuff it's weird it's almost like they're not monolithic that like it's not all good or all bad in each one of these people they're just like they're complicated kind of like us and the thing that, that got John Dixon to start this book was a debate that he lost in 2008 in Australia, in Sydney. And he was um, communicating, um, he, he was in this particular uh, debate, and in the debate, they had this whole, uh, the question, they just surfaced the question, not specifically to Christianity, but would the world be better off without religion? And they absolutely lost that. They, they lost it going in, they lost it going out, and people were, were, unanimously against, not unanimously, but they were a majority of which against the idea that there was any benefit or value to 
to world religion. In fact, this is what Dixon put, said in his book. He said, 20 or so years ago, a frequent complaint against the faith was that it was too moralistic, holier than thou, or goody two-shoes. Many of you may have grew up in that era, like, I don't want to be a Christian. They're all like goody two-shoes, holy roller type people. Today, it is just as common to hear people say that the problem with the church is that it is immoral, violent, and hateful. Christopher Hitchens, famed uh, atheist um, who, who's, who passed away in the um, recent past here, within the last uh, five years, six years or so, he um, said this in one of his books. He said, we believe with certainty that an ethical life can be lived without religion. And we know for in fact that the corollary holds true as well, that religion has caused innumerable people not to just conduct themselves no better than others, but award themselves permission to behave in ways that would make a brothel keeper or an ethnic cleanser raise an eyebrow. As I write these words, and as you read them, Christopher Hitchens wrote, people of faith are in their different ways planning your and my destruction and the destruction of all hard-won human attainments that I've touched upon. Religion poisons everything. Religion poisons everything. Now, if you're someone that's paying attention like in the last 20, 30 years, you probably have really good examples of ways that church that the church, as far as Christians representing themselves globally, have kind of like given a black eye to Jesus. I mean, we probably, we've either heard it from people or we've seen it in our own lives. Many of you have been hurt by the church. The fact that you're here today is a shock because you've been like just disappointed and let down by Christian leaders time and time again. But, the, but it's, it's deeper than that because as soon as a, as a high schooler graduates and goes to college, they're going to learn about other aspects of church history that they may not have heard about or they may have thought, oh, that's someone else. It's not my tribe of Christians. And the reality is we have to own the past. And here's some of the key things that the past surfaces. Number one is the Crusades. The Crusades took place between 1096 and 1300 AD with the primary objective to get the Holy Land back from the Muslims. We, we talked about um, kind of like the whole series of events leading to um, Muslim control from Jude Jewish control to Muslim control to Christian control, then back to Muslim control. Well, in that mix of historical events is the Crusades. And the Crusades was basically, again, England saying, we're gonna go ahead and pull together a bunch of people and go down there and basically get Jerusalem back. And so as England marched on, there's not just one crusade, there was five crusades. And the first crusade was one where they we marched on down, they eventually get down to the city of Jerusalem. If you've been on one of our trips to Jerusalem, this is a familiar sight. And so you got Jerusalem all surrounding here, and here's the Temple Mount, okay? This is the Dome of the Rock, this is the Alaska Mosque. And um, this is just a beautiful, like, uh, I mean, patio up there. It was really, really crazy when we were there. Not as crazy as it is today. But when we got there, um, one of the things that you learn about is just the history of that. But one of the things I didn't know about was in the Crusades, that was an objective. We want to get this back. And so these Crusaders marched for two years from England to get there. And then they are bombarding the walls of Jerusalem for one month before eventually they're able to bust in and they are able to go through the city streets, killing anyone that's there. And then eventually they get up to the Temple Mount. And when they get up to the Temple Mount, what's described is just a massacre where blood was so deep between the Alaska Mosque and the Dome of the Rock that you, could, that you waded through it. Now that might be hyperbolic. It might be like an exaggeration. But we have eyewitnesses who were not the, the, the Muslims who were being beat up or killed. 
but it was actually the Christians who were like glorifying and excited about what they had just pulled off. One of them was a guy named Raymond of Aguilar's who said this, wonderful sights were to be seen. Some of our men cut off the heads of their enemies. Others shot them with arrows so that they fell from the towers. Others tortured them longer by casting them into the flames. Piles of heads, hands, and feet were to be seen in the streets of the city. It was just and splendid judgment of God that is that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers since it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. That was July 15th, 1099. The next day, they celebrated Thanksgiving, now a turkey, and it, was, it wasn't a celebration of any type of a national holiday or national event. It was a celebration of what took place the previous day on the 15th. So on the 16th, they go from this courtyard up to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And if you went to Israel with us, you know that's where, where we believe Jesus was crucified. The place where we were, Jesus took on the sin of the entire world, right? And they went in there and they had a Thanksgiving service of what just took place the previous day. Praise God for what happened, what we did. Now, the rest of the, that was the first crusade, the only crusade that could be deemed as successful. The rest of the crusades were a dumpster fire. And they just basically got worse and worse and worse where all of a sudden they lost that ground and the Muslims took it back. And then there was like treaties between the Muslims and the Christians that kept on getting broken. And it was just, it was terrible. And it ends up being not only something that we look back on as a terrible event, but the Muslims record their history as this is their brightest moment. I mean, look at these men of Sunday, which is what they call Christians. Men of Sunday, the, the, the particular guys under Saladin called Christians the men of Sunday. The men of Sunday gave us their best and we, God showed who his favor was upon. Crusades are one of those events when people think about Christians, historically, they think about that. But not just that, it's also the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition, which took place between 1478 and 1834, was to root out heresy. In, in, in uh, Spain, you had two court systems. One was like a secular court system, like you did something messed up to your neighbor, you're you know, lighting off firecrackers and it's not even 4th of July, you go to that court. Then there's the other court, which is like religious. And the religious court was basically, are you a heretic or not? Are you saying something against the Bible? Are you, are you, you know, living out some type of non-belief? Now, the, the start actually starts with King Ferdinand, who's a super, super, like, um, super powerful king. And he can, convinces the Vatican to go ahead and bless the fact that we're going to have trials because in our land, we have some people that we think are causing our economic downfall the Jewish people, but not just the Jewish people, it's the Jewish converts to Christianity. The, 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 the conversos, the, I mean, the conservos, the conservos is what they call these, these, these people. And so basically the Spanish Inquisition was to rule out Jewish converts to Christianity, Jews in the land, Protestants, witches, cattle uh, thieves and clergy who had, had done messed up stuff. And so it was a lot of stuff, basically anything that dealt with more morality or some type of orthodoxy, the Spanish Inquisition took on over the course of that 350 years. Now, now one of the things that is important for us to know when we, when we learn about history, because we, we hear about this stuff, like people, they're burned alive because they were said they were a witch. And then we find out later that this person was not a witch or operating in witchcraft or anything. A majority of the people killed that were witches in this inquisition were people who struggled with mental illness or were the person who cut you off in line, you know, and then you just got ticked off and you made an accusation and went to the inquisition and boom. But the reality is we need to balance this with some of history as well. Those two court systems, 
people knew that between the two court systems, the Spanish Inquisition was actually fairer. That just shows you how messed up the other one was. If you were being held for some, some crime that you did, you would actually start saying something heretical just so that you could be tried by these guys because they were gonna be fairer than the other guys, which is crazy. If you were in the secular state prison, you tried to get transferred to the Spanish Inquisition prison because they were more spacious, they had better quality of water, and they had a, an actual working sewage system. And so we have to balance that. But at the same time, we have to understand they did messed up stuff. An accurate portrayal of how many people died or were like murdered um, through this type of capital punishment for, in the name of Jesus was between five and 6,000. And so when people think about Christianity and Christians for the last 2,000 years, they think of the Crusades and they think about the Spanish Inquisition. And they also think about slavery and the endorsement of slavery. One of, one of the key things that people say is like, okay, I get the fact that, that Christianity is supposed to transform people, but how in the world can you say that Christianity has transformed people when Christians were totally complicit and okay with or even active in the slave trade? And not, not just the 18th century slave trade, I'm talking all the way back. I mean, it seems, seems like there were there was Christians who loved Jesus and owned slaves at the same time. And not only that, they used the Bible to absolutely support their case. They said that, 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 that God mentions slavery twice in the Ten Commandments and, and doesn't say anything against them, showing that he's at least nominally complicit in slavery. We, we have Paul talking about in the, in the New Testament how slaves should obey their masters. How can you say that this book is holy and good when it is actually set up and propagated that? So when people think about history and they think about Christians, they say these things. So we have to come back to the question, wouldn't it, the world be better off without Christianity? John Dixon, um, he writes, um, I think in the second chapter, about how he, um, he always appreciated the cello, never learned how to play it. So he rented a cello and he paid an instructor, like one of the best instructors in Australia, to tutor him for two hours on one piece the first several bars to Johann Sebastian Bach's um, uh, number, suite number one in G major. And if, I can't, I'm not going to hum it for you, but if you've ever seen a luxury car commercial, it's there, okay? It's like, it just, it's there. It's, a, it's one of those songs that, that you'd recognize. And so he, he so wanted to, so he gets tutored for two, uh, two hours and then he practices for five days straight those same bars over and over and over again because the next Tuesday he was going to be, he, he rented out a concert hall and he invited all his friends and families to come and watch him. And he sat there bow in hand with his instructor watching on as he began to play Johann Sebastian Bach's suite number one in G major. And it was horrible. It was like awful. It was the worst. And he later on said, if somebody listening to me play said, man, Bach stinks. I can't write at all. Did you hear how horrible that sounded? That was awful. They would be absolutely, they would be assigning to that misplaced judgment because it wasn't Bach's fault that I misplayed Bach's piece. Bach didn't miss the notes. He wrote an amazing melody. I'm the one that messed up each of the notes. And, the, and his instructor came on and took the bow and took the cello 
and began to play the piece, and it was awe-inspiring. It was amazing. Dixon's point is this. Jesus wrote an amazing melody. We have done a poor job of playing it in history. And often, you and I have done a poor job in playing it as well. The melody that our world gets to hear from Jesus is coming from us. What are they hearing? And, and what's the answer to that question? Would the world be better off without Christianity? In light of the fact that we have done so much damage, so much war, so much bloodshed, so much injustice, wouldn't it be like John Lennon said, better without a heaven and a hell or without religion? Wouldn't it be better without all those things that seem to complicate and cause people just to hate on each other? You watch the news and you, and you see in the news the horrible reality of what religion does when you have Jewish Israelis and Muslim uh, members of Hamas doing, duking out and warring and all the collateral damage that takes place. If there wasn't religion, we wouldn't have any of that. Wouldn't the world be better off with religion? And specifically, wouldn't it be better off without Christianity? I'm not going to speak to any of the world religions. I'm going to speak to Christianity because I'm a Christian. This is the first thing I believe that the world is benefited by because of Christianity. And that is the explanation, an amazingly comprehensive explanation of human brokenness. Are you read this with me? All have sinned and fallen short or the glory of God. How many people? All. All people have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. One of the things that happened in human history was we're seeing all this bloodshed happen. And then there's this, this period of time called the Enlightenment. It's like 130 years, 150 years or so. And, and it takes place over in Europe where they start saying, you know what, we need to have an age of reason. And one of the things that comes out of the Enlightenment is like, you know what, if we just kicked this concept of God to the curb, we would be in a much better place. The idea of God or the, you know, the reality is, is that we are primal people. And, and once you got, go from the 1700s into the 1800s, as you're getting to the end of the 1800s, you have this concept that not only are, I think that humanity has evolved, not only physiologically, but has have evolved psychology, psychologically. We're getting better and better and better. And the next stage of our evolution is going to be just ditching religion. Because again, the reason we do evil is because we're primal and we're tribal, and the thing that can make that something that is so connected is religion. If we just, religion, we would actually be in an age of peace and harmony and unity, and it would be phenomenal. And that's how we rolled into the 1900s. And yet, in the 1900s, all of a sudden we started seeing something. We are in the age of reason. And in the year age of reason, in the 1900s, all of a sudden we saw more bloodshed than ever took place ever before. Within the first two world wars, between 65 and 70 million people died. And those wars were not motivated by religion or God or Jesus. You roll into the, the rest of the, the, the 1900s when you have a series of three atheistic regimes that take place. First off with Stalin. Stalin in Soviet, in, in Soviet Russia. And the thing that we see um, in, in his regime is that he t has uh, 15 to 20 million people within the Soviet Union that he kills. And that's 15, to, and the, the crazy thing is that when you, you look at the actual stats, more people died in Stalin's regime in one week than all of the Spanish Inquisitions did in 350 years. There was more deaths in Stalin's regime in one week 
than there was in 350 years of the Spanish Inquisition. His successor was a guy um, by the name of Mao in China, and there was 10 to 50 million deaths. In Cambodia, was a, there was an, another successor to this whole concept of an atheistic regime who was Pol Pot, who killed 25% of the country. Now, here's the thing, especially with those last three guys, God was not the motivation. Humans aren't broken because they have faith. Humans are broken because all have sinned. We depart from our creator, Christian and atheist alike. Whenever we depart from the way of Jesus as humans, we get into evil and evil happens. So you're going to see Christians who commit horrible evil acts. And you're going to see atheists that are going to commit horrible evil acts. And the explanation for both of them is all have sinned. All have sinned. Actually, go back. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My takeaway is this. Whenever um, someone comes up to me from here on out, and I want to encourage you to do the same, and they say, hey, you want to know what? Your, your tribe of people, your religion has done terrible things. I want you to do this. I want you to look them right in the eye and say, you don't know the half of it. It's way worse. I mean, there's stuff that wasn't even recorded that my people have done. But here, I've done horrible stuff because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the reality is, is that, that whether it, the, the violence of the Crusades and the Inquisition and slavery done by Christians, that is a betrayal of the way of Jesus. That's not them following the way of Jesus. The problem with Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot is that their actions are in line with the understanding and the teaching that there is no judge. There is no creator that you have a moral obligation to. And there is no ultimate dignity for humanity, which actually leads us to the next one. We can put that up now. The equality of all humanity. This is the second thing that Christianity has brought in because of Jesus, the melody that Jesus is teaching us. The equality of all humanity comes from this. Jesus was convinced and communicating this reality, Genesis 1:27, that God created all humanity in his own image. Why are people valuable? Because of that. And that was something that Christianity started right from the very first century attacking. Um, one, in 1 BC, we have this letter that came from this guy named Hilarion, which, and he was like a Roman soldier. And this is a, a letter that he wrote to his wife. And because only like three or four of us can read this in here, I'm going to go ahead and read it for you because I've got the translation. Hilarion writes this. He says, Hilarion to my sister Alice. And that's one way of saying um, wife back in the day. Many greetings. This is a love note, by the way. Many greetings also to my lady Veros and Apollarion. Know that I am still in Alexandria and do not worry. If the army is wholly set out, I'm staying in Alexandria. I ask you and entreat you, take care of the child. And if I receive my pay soon, I will send it on to you. Above all, if you bear a child while I'm gone, if it's male, let it be. If it's female, cast it out. You have told Aphrodias, don't forget me, and how can I forget you? But I'm asking you not to worry. This is a love note from a, first, from a first century BC Roman soldier to his wife saying, listen, if you're pregnant and you have a boy, sweet, keep the kid. If not, cast it out. And what that means is basically taking the child and doing what in the Roman uh, community was called exposure, where you take the child to the edge of a forest or you take the child to the edge of a river and you leave it there and you walk away. Because you know that the wild animals would go and take care of the child and you wouldn't have to worry about it, but it wasn't your hands that were dirty. 
Christians in that culture come to that type of a setting and say, this isn't right. That baby girl, even though she's a girl, is just as valuable as the emperor in Rome. Why? Because she's created in the image of God. It doesn't matter how capable she is. It doesn't matter how functional she is in society. It doesn't matter how wealthy she is. She is absolutely inherently valuable because of the equality of all humanity. And this is the, the amazing things that we see starting to take place with regard to the concept of slavery. Christians are painfully slow in addressing slavery. And yet at the same time, we see within God's word that we see Paul addressing people that are stuck in a system that they have no power and no control. It says, okay, in that situation, represent Jesus well. If you're a slave, represent Jesus well. And then in another book, what he does is this. He, write, uh, he writes a letter to a guy named Philemon. This guy's a slave owner who's a Christian now. And his slave, Onesimus, has run away and catches up to Paul in another city. And Paul writes the slave owner and says, I just want to let you know something. Onesimus has run away and found me. Now, you and I would be like, Paul, why are you throwing the guy under the bus? You're narking on him. Like, don't do that. Let the kid go. But Paul writes him and he says, listen, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. Okay, this is, this is even more damning. I mean, for crying out loud, of course, see, that's why I can't believe in Christianity. That's why I don't trust the Bible. They're totally pro-slavery. And then he says to Philemon, and this is what I want you to do when he comes back. He's not coming back as a slave. He's your brother in Christ, and I want you to treat him like you would treat your brother, like he's family. He's no longer a slave. The very first abolitionist propaganda piece ever written is recorded in the canon of the New Testament. It's called Philemon. And from that moment on, Christians recognized that they had a different way of relating to the issue of slavery. And whether it was the second century or the fifth century or the 18th century, the people that were on the front lines of abolition against slavery were Christians. And the movement was predominantly occupied by Christians. And that's not by mistake. That's because they were returning to the melody line of Jesus that had been forgotten by those who were slave owners and calling themselves Christians. And, that, and that, that's something that we see over and over again. It's not only the explanation for human brokenness, it's not only the concept of equality, but it's also the exceptional love that Jesus commanded. But, for the, but to those of you who will listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good for those, to those who hate you. One of the things that is just absolutely astounding about Jesus is that he calls us to not just do what the Old Testament tells us to do, which is to love your neighbor. But he says, I'm insisting that a connection to me causes you to love people that are not just loving to you or just close to you or within your same ethnicity or your same tribe. Your love, if it's modeled after me, the love that I'm commanding you to start modeling Christians is a love that's going to actually cause you to love even your enemies. And you know when someone actually started participating in that and practicing that, that got recorded? The Crusades. Within the Crusades, you've got this guy named Francis of Assisi. You may have heard of the guy. Francis of Assisi is in there and he's bringing um, this sidekick friar um, along with him. And he goes up to the generals of the Crusades and he says, you're about to attack that town where they have a Muslim army and those, you're going to go head to head. But I say that as Christians, look at what's on your shirt. They told you when you left England that you were going to be forgiven for anything that you did. They told you when you left England that you actually would receive salvation for fighting the Muslims and bringing the Holy Land back. But that is not what Jesus called us to do. What he called us to do is to love our enemies and to share Christ. Let me go instead of with a sword to go and love 
and share the, my, my, our faith of Jesus with these Muslims. And everybody laughed. Like, what a joke this guy is. All right, go for it. And so they send word ahead saying, okay, we got this weird monk. Um, he's going to come on over and he's going to talk to you guys. Just give him five minutes. So Francis and his, his friar sidekick go on over to the leader and, and they put him in front of the entire army and he preaches the gospel. The reality that we're broken in our sin, that we need God and that at the feet of God, all are equal to him and that he loves us. And he loved us by sending his son to die for us. And he rose again. And the general said, you've given me a proposition. I'm gonna give you a proposition. Become a Muslim or die. And Francis is like, did you, did you just hear me? No, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to help you become a Christian. And they said, okay, bring it on. And they kicked his butt. And the friar who came with him, who was like, this was a terrible decision to go with Francis today. They beat them up royally and sent them back. And so limping back into the crusader army compound, everyone is roaring with laughter. See, this is what happens when you just live like that. And yet one by one of the soldiers surrendered their ranks and started following Francis as saying, I am more inspired by what you're doing representing Jesus than I was in killing our enemies. And that's what began the Franciscan monk era of people that were living out the peace of the gospel and loving their enemies. One of the craziest things that we get a chance to see is that that is something that happens. Um, John Dixon put it this way in his book, violence has been a universal part of the human story. Everyone, everyone does violence, believer and not believer alone. The demand to love one's enemies has not. Division has been a norm. Inherent human dignity has not. Armies, greed, and the politics of power have been constants in history. Hospitals, schools, and charity for all have not. Bullies are common. Saints are not. The reality is, is, is that what we see in Christian history is Christians behaving horribly, and then there's these Christians that surface and say, no, no, we need to return to the melody of Christ. That if you're a follower of Jesus, follow Jesus. After World War I, Someone asked Albert Einstein to, to respond to what do you think about this war? And, and the reality that we're probably going to have more and more wars, and Albert Einstein put it this way, writing to a predominantly Christian audience, and he's not a Christian. He says, yet, why so many words when I can say it all in a single sentence, and indeed a sentence that is most apt for me as a Jew? Honor your master, Jesus Christ. Not only with words and songs, but rather foremost through your deeds. The truth is, is that we have an opportunity, if you're a follower of Jesus, to follow Jesus. A guy named Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, different Tom Holland. Uh, Tom Holland, who's uh, a famous uh, historian, I believe he's either agnostic or atheist, but he's, he's a famous historian in England. He's been writing all these books on Western civilization, and he's being published all the way up till now. He said this, he had this very controversial article that he wrote, and he said this, today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were most collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in a post-Christian society still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. 
In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. The reality is, is that we live out a reality and the opportunity to play the melody that is defined by that. Is that something that your world sees in you? We have an explanation for human brokenness that the world can't express. We have the equality of all humanity. We have the exceptional love Jesus commanded. And finally, we have the embedded self-correction within Christianity. Again, this comes back to our, our starting passage. You hypocrite. And the word hypocrite is the word for actor. You actor. A hypocrite was, it was a two-faced actor. Like, if you don't have the staff to have a full you know, cast, you'd have one character that was playing one person with, with a mask, and then they would, like, turn around and take off that mask and put on another one. And what Jesus is saying here is like, you know what? You guys are, like, two-faced. It's like, you, you, you're like, I, I'm, gonna, I'm a follower of Jesus, but then I act radically different. I'm not playing out the melody that, that, that I have given you. And instead, Jesus is calling us into playing that. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What Jesus is saying here is that as followers of Jesus, we pay way more attention to our wrongdoings individually and corporately than we do for the wrongdoings of the world outside. We pay far more attention to our own wrongdoings than the wrongdoings of those outside, if we're followers of Jesus. Because when we do so, all of a sudden, we have what we see built into Christianity. And this is one of the greatest gifts. Because as you study, Christian, as you study human history, as long as Christians have been there, you're going to have all the evidence to say, these guys are hypocrites. And Christians can stand there and say, yes, we were. And yes, we are. But look what happens. It's God bringing up other people that surface as representatives of him saying, this was wrong. These crusades were wrong. This inquisition was wrong. The way that we, we, any type of participation in slavery was wrong. And we could take that all the way up to today. If someone sees something on the news of someone doing something or saying something in the name of Jesus that does not read like Jesus, then you could tell that they're not participating in the melody line of Jesus and you need to return. You're one of those people. Jesus wrote an amazing melody for us to play. Return mission to the melody. Some of you, some of you are parents. You've experienced something that I've had to experience with my family. A fifth grade band concert. <laughs> They're brutal. Like, the worst. I don't know if hell has a soundtrack, but I'm, I'm not going to say that next service. <laughs> but close. Now, here's the thing. If you're there, you're listening to a bunch of people who have just been introduced to an instrument, and it sounds that way. I mean, it's, it's like cats being tortured, you know, sounds better. And, and it's one of those things where you can look at that and listen to that and just like go, okay, I've got, this is just awful. I've been there now with four sets of fifth graders that have gone through Manuka's band program. But I've also been the guy who sat as his senior in high school son has played a band concert at Manuka High School. It's amazing. It's different. It's wonderfully different. 
that should give all of us encouragement. We have not always got it right as Christians. We can own that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But as Christians, we could recognize that the Holy Spirit is the one that brings us back to the melody of Jesus. Honestly open to our brokenness, honestly recognizing that at the feet of Jesus, all are equal. He has called us to love even our enemies and that when we get off track, the Holy Spirit brings us back to the melody. We just studied the world history that the world, when they see and hear about Jesus, that's what they see. You are currently writing the history that the next generation will read. What melody are you living out? Let's return to the melody of Jesus, amen? Amen, let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the fact that you don't give up on us, that your spirit consistently brings us back to your melody, that we can grow, that we can tra be transformed, and we, we're, we're thankful that, that, you, that that's what you're doing. God, I pray that you help this congregation, that you help us not be those that are defensive, but instead we honestly and openly own the brokenness of our history and the brokenness of our personal story and the brokenness of the decision that we made last night that we could own all of those as evidences of people who have departed from your way, but that you, in your grace, bring us back. And we will give you the thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Love you, church. See you next week.